All right, we're going to be going into, um, well, the last, last announcement leads into the message for today, which is that we are going into a new series on the gospel according to John. Uh, if you were, if you are actually on our mailing list, you got an email earlier this week saying that we are starting this new series today. If you are not on our mailing list, you just go to our website, renewalsv.org, scroll to the very bottom, punch in your email there, and you will be on our email list for important announcements. But we are going into the book of John. Now, um, let me give a little bit of a background about this. Uh, uh, why the book of John? Well, we just finished 1 Corinthians a few months ago. And I can't believe it, but we were in 1 Corinthians for nine months. When I looked at the calendar, we were in there for nine months. Uh, now, granted, we weren't in 1 Corinthians the entire time. We kind of ducked out here and there for, for different passages or for different special messages. But about three quarters of the time, we were looking at 1 Corinthians. So three quarters of nine months. And uh, I don't know about you, I was really blessed by that because I, I think it's, it's so good to go through an entire book of the Bible from beginning to end because of the context that it gives. Because you get to see the big picture. Right? Um, you know, when we watch a movie, nobody watches a movie by going in and looking at a clip from the 32nd minute until the 34th minute. And then three weeks later, I'll come back and I'll watch the ending of the movie. And then nine months later, I'll come back and I'll watch the 11th minute until the 23rd minute. Nobody watches movies like that because you're not going to really understand what's going on or have a good sense of the flow of the movie, of the whole story. But we do that all the time with the Bible. And now, that's not bad. That's not wrong. I've done it before. It can be totally fine to jump in and out. But there is something also, I think, that we, a perspective that we gain when we go through the entire letter or, or book that we're reading. And that's I was so blessed by 1 Corinthians that we're going to be doing that again for the book of John. Now, 1 Corinthians was 16 chapters. John is 21. So we might be in this for over a year. We likely will be in here for a while. We're going to get to know John really, really well. You're going to be sleeping at night and dreaming about John and talking to him and stuff. Um, we, will, we will come out of John here and there as needed. But for the most of the next year, uh, buckle your seatbelts. We're going to get to know John pretty well, and, and I'm excited about that. Now, John was written by, I believe, and, and most people I would say believe, John, the son of Zebedee, one of Jesus's original 12 disciples. Uh, he was with his brother James, James and John, when Jesus came up to them, and they were uh, fishing with their father Zebedee, and Jesus called them to follow him, and they left their nets, they left the fishing boat, and they followed him. They were known as the sons of thunder because of their fiery personalities and, um, and who they were, uh, and it, it, you know he wrote this gospel. Now, John lived quite a while, and something interesting about him is that he was the only disciple that people believe out of the 12 who actually was not killed, who was not martyred for his faith. Um, the, the others were all killed because of 
of their faith in Jesus. John lived actually quite a long time. He lived in exile on the island of Patmos for his faith. Uh, and he actually probably wrote the letter of John later on in his life, sometime between 70 and 100 AD. This was after the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD. So he lived after that period. So he was a pretty old man by the time he was writing this. He also wrote the first, second, and third letters of John, the shorter books of the Bible, and also that crazy but amazing book, Revelation. The, the visions that he received when he was on the island of Patmos, he wrote them down. So John, he was no slouch when he came to writing the Bible. Uh, he wrote a lot of the New Testament, and the Gospel of John was written by him. Now, you may ask, hey, why another Gospel? I mean, we already have Matthew, Mark, Luke. Do we really need another one? How many of you have ever felt like, man, when I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it all feels the same to me? I, I've certainly felt that way before, but the reason is because I wasn't reading carefully enough. If you felt that way as well, you weren't reading carefully enough because the Gospels are written by different people with different perspectives that, that add a lot, that add so much to our understanding of Jesus and who he is. Like, you know, for example, if we think about George Washington, how many biographies of George Washington are there out there? Probably hundreds, maybe more than a thousand biographies of George Washington. It, it, nobody ever says, why do we need more than one? <laughs> Whoever wrote that first biography of George Washington, wasn't that enough? No, we never say that because we say, well, George Washington was an important figure. And so it's good to have different people writing about him because we'll get different perspectives, people who've studied and researched different things, maybe people who knew George Washington and experienced different parts of his life. And these different biographies give us a richer picture of who the man was. Now, if we would totally understand that and consider that legitimate for George Washington or other famous people throughout history, why can't Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, have more than one biography? Why can't he have four? I think four is very, very reasonable. And when we think about it that way, um, maybe, maybe you know, there should be thousands of biographies of him, but God has blessed us with four to give us different perspectives on who he is. So today, we're going to be going into that and we're going to be going into the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So I'm going to pull that up or try to pull that up here on my screen. Okay. There we go. All right, I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 18. Thank you so much, Nathan. Now, this is uh, what many theologians call the prologue of the book of John. Now, a pro if you don't know what a prologue is, you can just think of it as an introduction. Uh, if you are a fan of Star Wars, you know, the beginning of Star Wars, they always have those, that text scrolling up on the screen. That's the prologue of Star Wars, kind of giving you a big picture of what's going on and what that movie is about. John 1, verses 1 through 18, is the introduction. It's the prologue to what the rest of the letter of John is going to be about. So let me read through this first, and then we'll come back around. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known." Amen. This is the word of God. Um, you know, I, I want to I go back here to the beginning of John chapter 1, verse 1, where he talks about the beginning. But I want to read, before I do that, I want to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, because I have to do this, because John is, I believe, clearly alluding to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 here, and and maybe more of chapter 1, as he starts his gospel. So let me read from Genesis. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I think that, you know, if we read John carefully, and if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 1, or even if you weren't before, now that you've read it here, now that I've read read it to you, I think there is such a strong correlation here that John must be in his gospel, starting off by by alluding back to Genesis 1, to the very creation story, which starts off in the beginning, God created. And in John chapter 1, he says, in the beginning was the word. He brings us back to the very beginning, to that point of creation. But now here's the thing. The interesting thing is here that he uses this term for God which is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, why did he use this interesting term? In the Greek, the word is logos. Why did, Paul, why did John choose to use this term logos? Why did he call God the Word? 
Now, there's a lot written about this. There's a lot of debate and different views by theologians, um, everything from the, the Greek Hellenistic culture to what Philo once said to various different things. But I think one thing that we can do, one thing that I think makes a lot of sense is to simply look at the Torah, at the Hebrew Bible, at the Old Testament, and to see what, what was the word what was the Word of God in the Old Testament? Well, one thing was the Word of God represented, it was, it was God's self-expression, and in a way, it represented Him because all that He said, all that, everything that He said came to pass. He was the God who spoke. It represented Him very, very deeply. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, it says, God said let there be light. And guess what happened? There was light. It doesn't say God had to try to create the light. God manufactured the light somehow. He did something. It simply says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Let there be sky. Let there be water. Let there be land. Let there be man. Let there be animals. Let there be birds. Let there be. He speaks and there is. God is the God who creates by the agency of his word. In the 33rd Psalm, the author there said, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Their starry host by the breath of his mouth. I don't know if you've been following the pictures coming uh, to us from NASA, from the James Webb Telescope, but they are crazy. They are wild. They are wild. I showed them to my wife, Christine. She's like, don't show that stuff to me. I can't handle that craziness that's out there that's in space. These are wild, wild photos coming in. All of that, those nebulae and those uh, constellations and galaxies, all created simply by God's word. He spoke, and there it was. I think there is such identification of God and his word in the Old Testament because he is the God who speaks, and when he speaks, things come to pass. It is his self-expression, and those things come to pass. Now, the interesting thing, though, here, the weird thing here is that, you know, if we look at this, it says, in the beginning was the word. Okay, all right. In the beginning was the word. God is the word. What he says happens. But then John says, and the word was with God. Wait a second. What do you mean the word is with God? If, if God is the Word, how could the Word be with God? If the Word is with God, then is the Word still God? Because you can't be like with yourself. I guess you kind of, we can poetically say you're with yourself, but what's going on here? If the Word is God, how could the Word be with God? And John, he makes this really clear as if to make sure we understand this in verse 2. He says, he, the Word, was in the beginning with God. So the Word, who is God, was in the beginning with God. And at the end of verse 1, he makes it clear. He says, the Word was God. The Word was God. John, what are you saying here? How could the Word be God? And how could the Word be with God at the same time? That doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense unless we have the doctrine of the Trinity. And here, 
in the very beginning of the Gospel of John, we see John laying out this foundation of this incredible mystery of the Trinity, that that Christians have come up with this term, the Trinity, which means that God, even though he is one God and there is only one God, we are, we are monotheists. We don't believe that there are many, many gods in this universe and you know, they're fighting for power like the gods of Mount Olympus or something like that. There's only one God. But somehow this one God is also three persons. Now, I know John doesn't say all this here in the very beginning, but this God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is three persons in one God. How this works, we don't know. It is a mystery, but it is what the Bible teaches. It's what John lays out right here at the beginning of the gospel, that God is one, but somehow he is also three. And that is not contradictory. That is not some type of uh, schizophrenia within God or, or something like that. It is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and, and this is, so friends, what, what he's saying here about Jesus, because the Gospel of John is about the life of Jesus, what he came to do is that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. And he was there with God from the beginning, and he himself is God. Jesus is eternal, has always been with God, and in fact, He says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the picture now, we kind of get this um, different picture of Genesis chapter 1, where we see God speaking and creating and saying, let there be light, let there be uh, sky, let there be the sun and the moon and the stars, And, and this picture of Jesus there going and doing the creating that the Father is saying, let there be, and then Jesus makes it so and creates and fashions the universe through his power as God as well. Jesus was there in the beginning creating with him. In Colossians 1, Paul says, for in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him And for him, everything that has ever been made was made by Jesus. Now, what this clearly means is that Jesus was not made. Jesus is eternal, has always been. He was not made by God. John doesn't say all things were made through him, but except for him, which God the Father made. And without him was not anything that was made except for he himself because God the Father made him as well. John doesn't say that. No, he says everything was made by him. Everything that's ever been made was made by him, period, full stop. This is in contradiction to the teachings of Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, that say that, no, Jesus did make everything, uh, except he, but he was also made. He was the first and greatest creature that God made. He was the most powerful of all the angels, and he made everything else, but he himself was also made. That is clearly not what John is saying. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God, and he made everything as well. I've been... um, you know, I, I've been reading this series, uh, a book uh, called The, the Three-Body Problem, this science fiction book 
by this author, Liu Cixin, and uh, it's, it's a trilogy. I'm almost done with it. I've, I've really, really been enjoying it. But as I've been reading it, it's, it's really, wow. It's like the, the author, you can tell how much he believes that humanity doesn't need God. It's all over this book. And that if, if humanity, if we can just harness the human spirit in the right way, and, and through technology and science and, and medicine and whatnot, we can conquer the cosmos. We can become our own gods. Well, I haven't finished the whole book yet, but I hope I'm not spoiling anything because it's coming to Netflix soon, so sorry. I'll try not to spoil anything here. But you know, you know that, that's definitely the direction I feel like it's going. Okay, I didn't spoil anything. That's the direction I feel like it's going. But you know... It, even as I read all of this and, and how humanity believes this, I think there's one major problem here, and it's that we, no matter how much we advance in our science and understanding of the universe and, and things around us, we can't create something out of nothing. We can't create something out of nothing. We just can't do that. There's an article in, in SciTech Daily and in this article, the author said this, Unfortunately, by now, even our best physics fails completely to provide answers. Until we make further progress towards a, quote, theory of everything, unquote, we won't be able to give any definitive answer. The most we can say with confidence at this stage is that physics has so far, so far found no confirmed instances of something arising from nothing. And I would like to add that, and we never will. We never will. I don't believe that that will ever be possible because God is the one who created something out of nothing. Before you start talking about, well, you know, what about quarks and antimatter and all this kind of stuff? No, no, I mean nothing, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Zip, zero, zilch, not a nothing. Nobody has been able to prove that humankind can create something or that anything can be created out of nothing. In Genesis chapter 1 and in John chapter 1 here, John explains to us that all things were made by Jesus. And without him was not anything made that has been made. Now, going back to the word here, Jesus being the word of God, I think one other reason the word is used, along within the Old Testament, the word was, was the self-expression of God. We see something in Hebrews chapter 1, Then the author picks up on this, the self-expression of God, and he says this about Jesus, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So God spoke, his word came via the prophets. But in these last days, meaning since the days that Jesus has come onto the scene, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. What is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying that God, he spoke, God, his word was there. And Jesus Christ, Jesus is the ultimate expression of the word of God. Because, you know, words represent, right? 
When, when you say something, it represents you. As long as you're not lying and we're trying to be truthful, when we say something, it represents who we are. And the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the perfect representation of God's word because he is the perfect representation of God. He's the exact imprint of, nat- of his nature. When you see Jesus, you see God himself. And this, this is actually the whole premise of John in this prologue. What he's saying in this book, in the letter of John, is that the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. Upon this hang the entirety of his gospel. If this is not true, the book of John is blasphemous. He's saying Jesus is the perfect representation of God because he is the exact imprint of God. He is the word the perfect expression of God. Now, in um, verses 4 and 5, there, there seems to be this interesting transition here. He says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, there's a little bit of ambiguity here. Is he talking about Jesus in the Genesis 1 creation, that type of light, let there be light, and Jesus creates the light and brings light into this world. Um, This light is shining out of the darkness. God created the light and separated it from the darkness. Uh, And this light was the the light, his life was the light of men as well. That, That mankind through Jesus, through the light that he created, through God and his grace, it became the life of mankind. Is that what he's talking about? Or is there actually a transition here to what we will see in the rest of the book of John, where Jesus comes into the world as the light, but he encounters an actual darkness in terms of the evil of darkness. Darkness as an evil, as a rejection of him. I think there's a transition here and an ambiguity here that that sets John up to go into the next verses where he talks about somebody who comes onto the scene, and that is John the Baptist. So he moves from creation and how Jesus was there and was the creator and the maker of all things. He turns our attention onto ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago, and he talks about how John the Baptist came onto the scene. A messenger came out of the wilderness declaring an incredible message. What was that message? The message that John the Baptist declared was that this God who made the entire universe wants to be in a personal relationship with you. Everybody who receives him and believes him, he gives the right to become children of God. You know how crazy that is? The God of the entire, who made the entire universe wants a personal relationship with you? I, I know, we, we, you know we just get so used to hearing that, that it doesn't create a sense of awe or wonder in us anymore. But can you imagine if, if, you know, you got a call and, and somebody said, hey, the, the president of the United States wants to have dinner with you tonight. And he's going to send Air Force One to bring you to the White House so that you can have dinner with him because he wants to be in a relationship with you. He wants to get to know you. You, Nathan, you, he wants to have dinner with you. What would you do? You'd go, sorry, guys, 
can't, can't play volleyball tonight or <laughs> whatever, whatever it is you're going to do today. I got to go. Why? Because this is an incredible opportunity. The president of the United States wants to get to know me and have a personal relationship with me. This powerful man, this important man wants to know me. Wow. Of course, I'm going to drop everything that I can do and I'll be there. Look at this shift that John has made. The God who made the entire universe wants to be in a relationship with you. He's not a deistic God who's far off, made the universe and is letting it run on his own, and he's gone hiding behind Jupiter or something like that. No, he wants to be in a relationship with you. In fact, he wants you to become a child of God. He wants to adopt you into his family. He wants to make you a son, a daughter in the family of God where he is the father and he wants you to be his child. How amazing is that? John says, we were, if you become a child of God, you're, you're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look, what John is saying is, this identity as a child of God, it blows every other identity out of the water. It supersedes everything else in terms of your identity. You know, like, how we're, we're born, when we're born of blood, when we're born because... How were we born? Typically, we think, well, my mom and my dad wanted to have a baby, or, or maybe they didn't want to have a baby, and, but either way, you ended up in the world somehow, and those were the, the circumstances of, of my birth and how I came into this world. Think about how much the circumstances of our birth affect us and our identity today. Think about that. Imagine you weren't born in America, or maybe not all of you were, but now you're living in America, you have incredible opportunity here. Imagine you were born in an incredibly poor country and you weren't able to get out of that country. How different would your life be if you were born and raised somewhere that was war-torn or suffered from uh, drought or famine, where there, the economic prospects were terrible and dismal? How different would your life be? Wouldn't you say, yeah, what I was born into has a huge, huge bearing on who I am? A while ago, I, you know, I majored in finance. I worked in finance back in the day, so I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I don't know if anybody you read that, Robert Kiyosaki. Pretty good book, actually. Man, yeah, if I had a rich dad, that would change my life versus having a poor dad. I want that rich dad. If I had a rich dad, everything would be different in my life. How different would my life be rather than having a poor dad? Man, that would make a big, big difference. Some of you may feel like, well, why? why? You know, I was, born, I was born into a really difficult family. My family was so unstable. Maybe I came from a broken home. Maybe all the time you heard fighting and, and there, was, there was hardly any peace in your home. And that has really affected you and who you are this day. Maybe you didn't feel loved by your family. And that is something that, is, that has taken a hold of you and instilled a chip that you have on your shoulder. What we're born into affects us so much. Maybe you were really affected by your race. Or by your skin color. Maybe that really affected you and that was a, a difficult thing for you. Man, when I, when I was growing up, growing up as a Chinese-American person, I did not want to be Chinese. I didn't want to be Asian. When I was young, I wanted to be white. I wanted to be white. Some of you may have wanted to be white too. Why? Because everybody on TV was white. The famous people, the, the beautiful people, the celebrities, all these people, they were, they were the cool people on TV. They were white. I wanted to be white. There was no Shang-Chi back when I was a kid. There was only Jackie Chan. 
And I got called Jackie Chan growing up, and it was not a compliment. He was funny, but not cool, right? And, and we, we grew up with all sorts of, of different things. But John says here, there's something that supersedes all of that. There's something that will change everything, and that is God wants you to be his child. And if you receive him, if you believe him, you will be born again as a child of God who he knows and loves personally, individually. He is offering you the right to become a child of God. This is not something that happens automatically. We could see here, John says that some people, this is a choice you have to make. And when he came, when Jesus came, when this message came, that not everybody received him. Many people rejected him. But those who did receive him, those who did believe him, became children of God. Brothers and sisters, these circumstances that you're born into, whatever it might be, your race, your skin color, your economic situation, your family, how everything was, these circumstances don't have to control or determine the outcome or the trajectory of your life. God says, I want you to be my child, to be born of a spiritual rebirth, not of flesh and blood, something that is deeper than flesh and blood, to be born of the Spirit of God. But you have to receive him and you have to believe him. Now, John here, in this last section, he gets very specific now. He gets very specific. Lest we think, oh, believe and receive God. God, I know you're out there. I believe you. I want to be your child. Daddy, daddy, come. Take me home. I want, I want to be your child. I know. Thank you so much that you love me. No, John gets more specific than that. He says, and the word, the word, Jesus, became flesh. He became flesh, and he dwelt among us. What he's talking about is what Christian theologians call the incarnation. God, Jesus, became man, was born as a human being through the Virgin Mary. God stepped into our humanity and became both fully man and fully God. And in, in, in how that works, again, that is a mystery to us. But God entered into our humanity and he dwelt among us, not in some ethereal, mystical, intangible way, but in the very person of Jesus. John says he dwelt among us. That word there, dwelt, is a very specific word. It doesn't just mean he lived with us, although that's very much true. That word dwelt is tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. And John is alluding to something very, very specific from the law of Moses, right? And, and, and that is, that's what? That before Solomon built the temple out of stone and gold, that God resided with his people in a tent, in a tabernacle. And now, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or, or religions all around the world, one thing that you'll find in common um, all over the world is that there, there always seems to be a tabernacle 
or a temple or a holy site or, or uh, something something. And, and those places tend to have priests or monks or, or holy people. Uh, they, they tend to be places where things like sacrifices need to be made, where rituals need to be performed, incantations need to be chanted. Why? Because the, it, what, we, what people have always understood is that we can't just go straight to God and be with God. There needs to be some type of bridge, something whether temple, tabernacle, some type of building, holy place, a a bunch of stones laid together in a certain formation. We we can't just go to God. There needs to be this place, this temple, this tabernacle that bridges the gap between us and God. Why? Because we can't just go to God. Something separates us from Him. And that's very, very true. That's very true. This is why it's also crazy that John says that we have seen his glory in verse 14. And in verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What John is saying is something that uh, was very, very um, familiar to the Israelites, to the Jews. And it was this, this concept, this truth that nobody has ever seen God. You can't see his glory. Why? Because God is so holy. He is so pure. And and we, as humanity, are are sinful. We are tainted by sin. And if anybody were ever to come into the direct, unmediated presence of this holy God, we would be destroyed. We would come apart at the scenes. We would disintegrate. We would fly into a million pieces. Because sinful man cannot approach this holy God. This is why in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah had this vision of God that wasn't even a, a direct view of God per se, it was veiled in some way. But even in that vision, Isaiah said, woe is me because I've seen God. I'm coming apart. I'm coming apart. Moses at one point in Exodus, he said, God, I want to see you. Show me your glory. And God said, okay, I'll show you my glory, but you can't handle my glory. So I'm going to put you in a little crack of the rock and then I'm going to walk by and you're going to cover your eyes. And then when I'm halfway past, I'm going to say, okay, you can look now and you can look and you can see my backside. You're going to see my backside because you can't handle even the front side of my glory. It's too great. So Moses saw God's backside and even that was I'm sure Moses was like, whoa, what a, what a, what a backside of God, right? Whatever he saw, God said, you can't look at me directly. It's crazy that John can say, we've seen his glory when nobody has ever seen God. How can we see the glory of God then? Well, he says in verse 16, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, I don't think that interpretation, grace upon that translation, grace upon grace, is the best. Kind of makes you think like, oh, God's grace is like grace upon grace, like waves upon waves crashing onto the seashore is the grace of God, grace upon grace. But I, I think it's actually better translated grace instead of grace. Anyway, what did that mean? You know, like uh, grace. What do you mean grace instead of grace? If it's already grace, what do you mean grace instead of grace? Well, he explains, he explicates in verse 17. For, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What is John saying here? He's saying that the law was a type of grace. It was the first grace. 
What, what kind of, what do you mean by the law is grace? Well, the law, the law of Moses, the Torah, it was grace because it showed us how much we don't keep the law, how much we can't keep the law. We were always sinners. Since Adam and Eve found the sin, we have always rebelled against God. God gave the Israelites the law, and the law revealed to them how much they couldn't keep it. Again and again and again, they fell, and they turned away from the law. And the whole purpose of the law was to reveal to them, hey, man, you messed up. <laughs> you need help. That's grace. It's good to know that you're not okay that you need help. That's grace. If you go to the doctor and you get a bad diagnosis, it's not good to hear, but it's grace because now you know you need help. You need help. You need medicine. You need treatment. You need something to fix yourself. But here's the thing. It says we've received grace instead of grace. The law was a type of grace through Moses. Now Jesus came and he could have come and brought not grace and truth. He could have brought judgment and truth. He could have came and said, you know what? Look at that. You're a bunch of sinners. And we would have had to say, you're right. We can't keep the law. It's so obvious. And Jesus could have said, yep, it's payback time. Time for judgment and truth. Facts, as the young people say. You're sinners. Just learned that one recently. You're sinners. Time for judgment. The truth is, you are sinners. But no. What did God do? Jesus came and he gave us not judgment and truth, but grace and truth. He gave us grace instead of grace. He gave us the new covenant grace instead of the old covenant grace, which was not enough. And that grace came in the form of him dying upon the cross for our sins. Because this God who was perfectly just could not let sin go unpunished. Because if he did, he would not be a God that upholds perfect justice in the universe. But we know that he is. So what did he do? He gave his own son. Jesus came and gave us grace instead of grace by giving us his own life, by dying upon the cross for our sins, by entering into the tabernacle. As the author of Hebrews says, not the tent, but the real one, he says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then, through the greater and more perfect tent, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the one in the desert, not the one made of goatskins, but the perfect one in the heavenly realms, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing and eternal redemption. Jesus, John was so intentional. Jesus tabernacled. He became flesh and he tabernacled amongst us because he is the meeting point. He is the bridge between God and humanity. And he entered into that tabernacle himself. He is the tabernacle and he entered into the tabernacle to present his own life as that sacrificial lamb, that sacrifice that would atone for our sins. And this is why there aren't always leading up to heaven, but only Jesus. And this is why he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. No one.
I have presented my own life within the tabernacle. Friends, I want to conclude first by making you an offer. And I'll invite the worship team up here right now. If you are not a Christian, if you have never believed in the name of Jesus, if you have never received him as the only God who gave his own life upon the cross so that your sins could be forgiven and who was raised from the grave on the third day so that you could also be resurrected in a new life. God wants to be your father. He wants you to be his child. The God of the universe is inviting you to become a part of his family. And there is nothing that you can do to earn it. You can't be good enough. You can't be holy enough. There's nothing that you can do. The only thing that you can do is to receive and believe. I receive and I believe. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. In God, I believe that what Jesus did upon the cross was for me as well, the only source of my salvation. Would you be the Lord of my life? I believe in Jesus, my Savior, and I invite Jesus to be my Savior. Would you come and make me a child of God? If you do that, as simple as that, you become a child of God. And no matter what family you were born into, where you were born, how much money you have, all of that doesn't matter anymore because you become a child of God. You just receive and believe because there's nothing that you can do to earn that. Christians, brothers and sisters, my question for you is, man, it is so important for us to remember our identity. Where are you placing your identity? Let us go back and remember once again that we are children of God, not born of the flesh, not born of blood, not born because two people chose to or two people didn't choose to, whether you were loved when you were born or you were quote-unquote accident, whether everything in your life was hunky-dory or there was fighting and pain and hurt. All of those things, none of those, they all become subsumed under this new identity as a child of God. What are you striving for? Who are you, who are you trying to be? So many of us, we forget this and we continue. We continue to think that I'm somebody. I'm somebody if I have that job, if I make that money, if people look at me a certain way, if I get married, if I have that type of family that I'm envisioning the future, if I'm smart, if I'm handsome or beautiful, if I, I'm good at sports. We put our identity in so many things. Brothers and sisters, let us this morning once again come back and say, God, remind me that I'm a child of God, born not of anything else in this world, but born of your will. You chose me. You chose to love me. And I am a child of God. Brothers and sisters, we could even still be living under the old grace. Are you living under the old grace? Your identity is in, in trying to be good enough for God, trying to serve enough for God, trying to not sin for two weeks, three weeks, long enough for God to love you. 
God has given you a new grace instead of that old grace. In the love of Christ. Can we um, come before the Lord this morning and uh, if you're in that first camp, I encourage you, you could just tell God in your heart, I, I believe in your son. I believe that he died for my sins. Jesus, be my God. You just tell them that in your heart or you could speak it out loud. God hears. God hears. And you will become a child of God in this moment. You will be forgiven. You will enter the family of God. Brothers and sisters, let us also come and bring our hearts. If you're a Christian, let us ask the Lord, 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 remind me. God, forgive me, Lord. I've, I've just placed my identity once again in other things. Lord, how, how prone my heart is to, to wander, to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Seal it in my identity as a child of God. Remind me once again of your love for me. Let's come and let's bring our hearts before the Lord. Let's spend some time in prayer before we enter into worship. Can we do that right now? Just come. Come. Bring your heart to God. Come. Ask the Spirit to come and do a great and powerful thing in your life. Ask for God to speak, to speak by His Word, to say. Maybe you're having a tough time hearing or believing it. Let Him, let him speak His Word in your heart. Ask Him, God, let me hear you say, Son, let me hear you say, daughter. Let me hear you say, beloved. And may it drown out the other voices in my life. Speak, oh God. Speak your powerful word once again to my heart, oh Lord. And renew and refresh, oh God. Let's pray. Oh God, we invite your Holy Spirit come. Oh, we invite your Holy Spirit. Speak, oh God. God who spoke, who spoke light into darkness. God, speak into our hearts. Speak into our hearts this morning, God, about who we are, beloved children of God, that we can call you Abba, Father. Oh, God, come. We pray, Lord, speak your powerful word, a word that is so strong it drowns out the, the lies and the voices of this world, the voices of our hearts. Oh, God, speak. Speak, God. Let us hear how loved we are. How precious we are in your sight, O oh God. Free us, God, from the lies and the voices, the performance orientation. God, the old grace that we're still living under. Oh Lord, remind us of who we are, we pray, O oh God. Let's stand together and let's continue to seek God as we worship and as we pray this morning.